0: So today I have the pleasure of speaking with um, Joseph Pold. I met Joe through some common work we're currently doing um, for the journal uh, for medical Re- sorry journal for medical internet research or Jmir. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, Joe is the head of marketing and insight sorry marketing insights and analysis at Jmir Publications, uh, based out of Philadelphia. He received his bachelor's degree in geology in 2016 from the University of Pittsburgh and then began his career as an editorial intern at John Wiley and Sons. Did I get that right? Uh, We just call it Wiley, but yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So there he worked for several years, eventually becoming the editorial program coordinator. He also worked for Springer Nature as an associate editor and then began his position at Jameer this year um so joe is very involved in the research community um a simple scroll through his um and the publication community i should say a simple scroll through his linkedin posts um, showcases that passion very evidently um today we'll be discussing some of joe's research during the pursuit of his undergraduate degree specifically pertaining to sewage pipe service density in relation to demographic factors in pittsburgh um with this in With this, I hope that Joe can discuss some of the more narrow scoped research that may be optimal for those interested in making their first um, try at a research endeavor. Um, I'm also just a bit of a, going off script here, I'm also hoping that um, maybe we can have a bit of conversation about the publishing process a little bit um, that many students might not be familiar with, many listeners, viewers might not be um, as familiar with um, getting into research so i really can't wait to see where this conversation goes and uh welcome to the podcast joe
1: thanks for having me ben uh i have to say that i am uh also have a, a a certificate certification in a geographical information systems which is really only relevant not so much professionally anymore but uh in relation to the research that i used to do when i was an undergrad it was very much focused around using gis tools so uh esri the, the esri arcgis suite if you guys are familiar with that Um, And yeah, always happy to talk about kind of the research process itself, Um, sort of my personal, one of my personal missions has always been to sort of illuminate what, as I discovered when I got into publishing, is oftentimes kind of like a a black box system for a lot of people. Um, And, you know, my personal opinion is it seems to be very much intentionally designed that way. And so, you know, talk about some of my work at Jamir as well about how it works kind of outside of that system. Um, but yeah, just just broadly speaking, happy happy to talk about all things science. Um, I ended up in publishing, um, you know. As you said, I'm sure you talked to a lot of researchers outside of myself. I was at the point in my career I got into publishing, which is you know a fairly obscure industry for a lot of people. Where I knew that I wanted to do something that was involved with science, um, but I was quite burnt out from schoolwork, and I didn't necessarily know about what I wanted to do with such intensity that I felt comfortable throwing tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars at it in the next two to six years of my life at it. Um, So publishing was a really interesting way to sort of stay involved with the, with the research cycle, you know, make sure you feel like you're doing something to sort of move the needle there without having to uh, necessarily bury my head in a wet lab or whatever the heck it might be for the next umpteen years. Um, And it didn't really start with the direction and here we are today. So,
0: well, you know, research is sort of, um, scary, you know? And, and I I think that's something that I think people don't really fathom until they, they actually finish the research. And it's like, okay, like, like I know with myself, it's like, okay, we finished this paper and it's like, okay, this gets published and this is science, right? Like this is science. It's like the, I don't want to say it's the truth, but it's like, it's considered (laughs) part of like the scientific body, if you want to say that, right? It's part of the literature. And so like, yeah, literature, exactly. And it's, it's, it's really scary, you know. It's like you have to be like, um, I guess, pardon my my language. You have to be very damn sure that what you're writing is true, right? And and you want to make it as as true as you can possibly make it, and as um, as factual as you can make it. Um, and it's never going to be perfect, right? And so there's a lot of these sort of freaky things when you're publishing or when you're researching like that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a weird field. So I, I totally get that That um, if you don't know, right? If You don't really, um, you don't want to continue paying money. And of course, it's very expensive to, to um, research, right? That's not a, um, you need to find funding or you need to, you know, fork up some money. Um, or find
1: someone who likes you enough who has that
0: funding, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So actually, why don't we start there? Um, Research-wise, um, what do you, what would you suggest people who are interested in research, where should they go first? So people, they've never tried doing any research before, they say they're beginning undergraduate studies um, or say finishing off high school, whatever it may be, um, where do they go? Who do they talk to and and what, uh, like what would be their first steps?
1: Yeah, um, I think you touched on something that's very important prior to this, which is sort of like almost the imposter syndrome of like particularly if you are an undergrad, I don't have the the fancy, the DR, the fancy, the PhD, the MS, whatever it might be behind my name, how do I know that I'm good enough to be a part of the literature, right? That's, that's a real fear I'm sure a lot of people run into. And you know, to be completely honest, that's why I am not a published author. You know, I, I ran into that, I'd, I'd done work that I was proud of. I, I proved a point to my advisor, and I just thought, boy, the amount of stress and fear that's gonna go into throwing my name out there on this just isn't worth it. I've already got my accreditation, thank you, goodbye, um, which I would get is a lazy approach. So for the people who are who are uh, a little more gung ho than me and fearless than me, perhaps, you know, I think a really good place to start is you just asking around your department. You know, I, I got set up with I was very fortunate. I worked with a guy named Dr. Dan Bain in, in the Bain Lab at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and his his he does a lot of GIS stuff. His focus is primarily um, water flow. Uh, so using using GIS to sort of model water flow in various places, hence the hence the pipes. Um, but I really got connected with him because, first and foremost, him and I get along famously. He used to scare the absolute crap out of me, but you want it, it's you know you want to be able someone who like knows your has your best interests at heart. And I will say specifically to kind of the undergraduate audience, and this might not be advice that people love to hear, right? Is is uh, some people love working with undergraduates because some people are happy to have the you know starry eyed, can do attitude towards anything, and some people find frankly find them to be. Uh, a hindrance right you know if i'm only going to be working in your lab for a semester what is it that i can really train ben to do that's going to get me a return on the investment that i put into training of how to use this you know so depending on your on your specialty there's going to be sort of like hiccups around what you should be able to what you should scope for yourself right and i think that you as as a career early career researcher particularly someone really taking their first steps into it is to be very mindful of scope you know the research as it's taught to a lot of people is you're, you're taught the big concepts the grand concepts you're not necessarily taught so much of sort of the more granular pieces that get you there um so you know you could say like okay i want to work doing gel assays in some sort of virus and i've done that once in lab or something in in like my in my Chemistry lab, whatever it might be, it's like cool. But you know, to get the expertise that you need to be able to to confidently say that that will be a scientific result requires a lot of training and time. So you know, even just getting good at, at doing those assays themselves is like if that that is a research project for you. You know, if if you're someone very early in your career, getting where you can do lab grade assays of something that is a that is a research project for you. That's not necessarily you doing research and it's for on its own sake for yourself, but that is a skill that you can get out of it. And so I think scoping is very, very important for for younger people. I'm not saying I'm not, you know, I'm not going to invent a new element. I'm not going to cure cancer tomorrow. But what I can do is is understand. You know, I want to learn about the research process. You're not, you know, learning about what that means. I think is is a lot of the value you'll get out of engaging as an undergrad. And so then, you know, as I said, the next step is finding someone who's really able and willing to support you on that journey. Um, go with your, be fearless and go with your gut. Ask a lot of people. You know, I'm sure most. By the time you're a sophomore or a junior in, in your in your department, you're fairly well acquainted with the, depending on how big your school is for sure, but you're fairly well acquainted with the who's around your department, who are the friendlier faces, who are the more curmudgeonly faces, um, and so just have a sense of who it is you can talk to in, the, in that regard. Um, You know, you might get rejected. I definitely got rejected a couple of times. Just they don't have time for you for that reason. I said, it's just, there's nothing that we can really do that would be useful for you or for us. That's not a reflection on you. People just have different priorities. Um, eventually I found Dan who's like, you know, yeah, I'm happy. It's a lot of the value I got was sitting in, in lab meetings, right? Being part of that community and watching other people's work, people who are more advanced in that career's work. So, you know, not necessarily so much worrying about my own project, but seeing, oh, these are the questions that Rob's getting answered each week in lab meeting. You know, these, these are the sort of figures that he's being asked to make. These This is the line of thinking that he's being pushed on. That's much more educational than like, did I do my project this week, next week? Right. That's a very good way to start and to build that relationship up. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I'd say I also you know benefit from a number of ways because that community is really useful for you as a researcher oftentimes the students who you'll be working in labs with aren't that that much older than you and and the master students and the phd students are often very willing to help you as well because they they're uh, perhaps a little less jaded than their uh, advisors sometimes and you know a very direct benefit is a lot of times those master students their phd students are your lab advisors or, or you're like helping out with your classes so being able to, you know if, if you're involved with them and you can have that little personal connection where you can say hey i really love that help with that, like. A little extra explanation on that homework assignment whatever it might be it was very very helpful for me so i had i had groundwater geology at the same time it was being taught by someone who's always being ta'd by someone in my lab and it was really lovely to get like really good patient explanations from her because she knew that this was important to me and that i was trying um so let's say like a lot of the benefits you'll get out of research aren't necessarily like i learned to do research this is the research process um, but you'll get those a lot more through observation. And most of that, like, learning of the research process
0: might not necessarily be you doing research yourself. Um, well, with research, it's almost interesting, and, and correct me if, if you think differently, but um, that when you're researching something, it's a completely different way of thinking, right? Um, it's like, that, than, like, a, a typical classroom setting. And so you almost get, like, a whole new world of of. of of learning, if that makes any sense. Um, like it's, it's, it's interesting because you can sort of like when you're learning to learning enough or reading literature to do like research on a topic, you can sort of like pick and choose what topics you want to, to really study and focus on instead of like in a classroom setting where you're sort of learning like all of it, right? It's like you're learning everything about this topic, right? Um, when you do research, you can just sort of like leapfrog through these different concepts and just pick and choose the things you need um to get to the end to some extent right
1: oh uh, i would i push back on that because you know Feel free. along that you know along whenever in any sort of discovery you do in any sort whether that's the, you know i work primarily in business now whether that's competitive insights um which for people early in their career usually just it's a big word that's thrown around that means i clicked around on your website and what looked different yeah it's a big word for that um is is you'll run into things that both support and disagree with what you what your intuition is right um you know some things are intuitive some things are completely unintuitive you what you as a researcher need to do is to be able to like figure out which is kind of in the in and the out group there how many you know what is what how many points do I need to prove a point if I have like six pieces of evidence that point towards me one hypothesis and two pieces that point in the complete other hypothesis that doesn't mean i can just ignore those two pieces of information they should be part of my consideration as well whether or not i say these are truly outliers and I my tool or my measurement was incorrect in this place and i it was for whatever variable that's possible or it is telling you something that's much more inform. you know that it's a, these pieces of information only exist on in polls right they only this off extremes that's information in of itself um As I can say from my personal experience, like the work that I did was, um, you know, it's, it's intuitive work. Um, the point being, you know, had you ever walked around on the ground in these places that we were looking at in Pittsburgh, you'd figure out, Oh, quite, you know, I was looking at sort of sewage pipe density versus, uh, uh, demographic and socioeconomic status, you know, Intuitively, my brain will tell me that the rich people have a higher pipe density, which, you know, indicates better service. 30 people for one pipe is not good. and It's why you get bursts and all sorts of things, public health problems that can spring out of that. But, you know, my intuition says I can look at that map on my computer that says here's the pipe density. I know that that's the rich neighborhood and there's a high pipe density there. You know, that there's a low pipe density here in one of the poor neighborhoods. And I can intuitively know that. But the difference around science is being saying I can intuitively know that versus now I can empirically show you that right? Like, like I didn't necessarily learn anything. I didn't know doing my research. Wow. That neighborhood for a rich neighborhood has surprisingly poor service. That neighborhood for a a poor neighborhood, surprisingly excellent service of its pipes. Didn't really say anything like that. You know, the sad factors all correlated to each other about, right. Poorer neighborhoods, neighborhoods with, you know, less education, typically neighborhoods that were black, you know, typically had worse services of pipes. I knew that from walking around Pittsburgh. But that's where you build that foundation, right? You say so. Next time you go to a town council meeting, you know, years in the making, you bring your research with you and you say, "Look, I made this map on my own time that says these citizens who pay the, you know, pay taxes just like these citizens, they're not getting equal treatment in their in their sewage system than these citizens are." And this is this is the ever, you, know, you as a city councilman probably know that because you've walked around this neighborhood before. But you cannot deny this proof, and that's the purpose of doing research, right? And to your point around like. That direction of research is you have to you can have your hypothesis, but you should never discount anything that you know you you just dis- just dislike and doesn't fit your hypothesis. Every piece of, of information
0: course. is valuable. Of course, that's that's a so. very good point. Um, and and I think the other thing too is like that that I think people is a stumbling block at least for some people doing research is um, say like like for example, I'm a math student, right, and so when you're doing math problems, right, which are obviously way different than research problems, but when you're doing like math problems, like as in, you know, homework problems, um, you have your your textbook and you do the answers and you fill out the, you know, do like write out all your answers, do all the math, and then you flip to the back of the book and you check the answers and you see if you were right, right? Um, There's the thing with research is that you don't really know sometimes if you're right, and sometimes the answer just doesn't exist. Right, like sometimes you get to the end and it's just like, oh, that that was completely nothing. Right, like like there's still something you can glean out of it, but it's not like as clear cut as like the answer is five. Right, you know, you you got it right or you got it wrong. Um, oftentimes it's it's a little surprising. Like you said, it's a little bit. Um, you have to have an open mind, right? Um, going into it, you can't like start research with your conclusion already in mind. You can't write the conclusion of the paper and then start the research, right? Um. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny as well though because if for sort of taking your math example, right, um, uh, the, the pace of mathematics research moves incredibly slowly. Uh, you know, every every research field has a relative citation rate that that sort of goes along with it, right? So the great example is oncology, cancer research gets. I could write a paper today, I could publish it today, and I could have ten citations tomorrow morning just because there's so much funding behind it. There's so much apparatus to make that information. To set, you know, able to be disseminated, makes it accessible to people, to the right people. That that I can expect that that I can I can expect that ten people in my field will have read my paper and might have a relevant use for my paper. You know, in a week or so, which is incredibly fast. It's hyperbole, but still very very fast. You know, the most highly cited journal in the world is is CAA, Cancer for Clin- Clinicians. You know, and then you get to fields like mathematics, where the pace of the research is much much slower, much 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 slower. Right, so. There's not as many people doing it. So I'm not, you know, Ben and I, instead of working on the same drug towards a different result at the same time, so we can compare our results semi-concurrently when we're published, it's all right. Ben's working on a proof, it's going to take him three years to prove or deny it, right? And so you know, what? what is, it's kind of funny, it's, it's like, even even in mathematics, right, there's not necessarily like a, a right or a wrong answer. It's just things move so much slower that by the time typically it's accepted as fact, it's been four years and it's been under review and it's a pretty ironclad proof. So um, not to say that that doesn't exist, you sort of in other fields as well. It's just funny at like the speed at which that happens, I think. Um, that's
0: a really good point. I actually never thought of it that way. That's a, that's a great um, great way to phrase that.
1: Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it, you know, it's expectation setting as well, right? So like when you work in publishing, like our, our primary cur- currency is citations, right? The value, there are many ways to assign value to, to, to research for sure, but an easy sort of like just let's use this as American dollars is citations. Um, You know, the number of people that read your paper and said, hmm, this is, this is, I can build on this work. This is work is relevant to me that I can build on it by citing it in my own work. This is a great metric of that. And just based on how many people are in the field are working on it, in mathematics, just not as many, how quickly it takes to sort of review and confirm that information, again, in mathematics, much longer. Um, and that's sort of what builds up like the sort of the unique identities of, the com- of these communities, right? So as a publisher, you have to be understanding of that fact that like cancer for clinicians has an impact factor of probably I don't know, 50 or 70, right? That's the ratio of times it's cited to the number of things that's published roughly mathematics it might be 0.5 you know that might the highest journal in the white field might have one or something or 0.5 um, and you have to understand that those aren't necessarily like equal metrics and you know to spin this back to in terms of early career people like again you don't have to necessarily be moving the needle it's more just about understanding about what research in your field of interest looks like right so so if i'm a math student i'm going to work on one component of a proof that's i may never that might not be published until six years after i graduated but i should know that that's i've learned from that experience that that is what math research looks like it's going to be me grinding out a little piece of this much more labyrinthian thing Um, and that's valuable experience too because that will help you determine if you are interested in pursuing a career in research in your field right if you understand what that actually means to be a researcher in your field Um, and i think there's a difference there that you know a lot of students i think it's interesting to educate people on this sort of thing and is is the difference is I know I want to go and get another degree versus do I want to go be a researcher like I know I'm passionate about applied psychology and I want to go get my masters in applied psychology but but do I want to do research with that do I know what it means to be a researcher with applied psychology that
0: kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah for sure I I uh I think there's definitely a, a big difference there um yeah and so I think getting into research at a relatively early age um you know once you like have the connections to be able to do it. Once you have an opportunity to do it, take it right and run, mm-hmm. um, and 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 get some get some experience. Right, give it a shot. Um, and that's sort of what this podcast is all about. Um, so, I have one question. I, I think I'm going to take a bit longer on this section just because it's it's interesting to get to speak with you on this. Um, so I have one question, and it's going to lead to two questions. Um, <laughs> sure thing. The first question is a very abstract question that you may you will not know the answer to, but, but I'd just kind of like to hear. Um, in your estimation, how many research papers do you think you've read?
1: Oh, start to finish or abstracts?
0: <laughs>
1: um, start to finish, I could both. probably count and start to finish... Side of actually, oh, gosh, not nearly as many as you might think. Start to finish, probably less than 50. Um, abstracts, hundreds of thousands of them, hundreds or thousands of them. Um, so I say, you know, the, p- the only papers I ever really read start to finish outside of maybe one that really catches my eye or something that I've published. Um, remember, sex, drugs, rock and roll always sells. Um, would be yeah it's really sort of either stuff i did for my undergrad research or stuff i did for like a, a scientific technical writing class um abstracts hundreds and thousands but yeah you know to, to interesting point for you just to, just as like an overview metric for people right like the majority of papers go unsighted you know it's, it's like 45 percent of papers or something like that it's like about 50 percent of papers go unsighted um wow do you know how many uh, you know how many research outputs are, are published per year how many articles are published per year
0: i have no idea across all disciplines, i discipline? couldn't even ballpark, couldn't even two ballpark it two million about two million um, that is two
1: million pieces pieces of information published codified sci- scientified a
0: year it's a lot mm-hmm. that is a lot and, and like when you think about it there's no way like that that ought to be like you know I'd say like what is that tens of thousands a day Um, like that's a lot of that's a lot of research um, for you know like and there's obviously there's no way that even even within your field there's no way that you could read even like within a subsection of your field there's no way that you could read like or keep up on it Um, no 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 so that's the piece happen. that every
1: publisher tries to crack, right? That's, that's, that's the, that's the golden ticket for all of us is how can we make sure in a world where everyone is incentivized by publishing more? Everyone's not just the publisher, right? Like I, I, whether it's a for-profit publisher, independent publisher, if you're a researcher, you're, you're incentivized to publish. I mean, it'd be remiss to be on this podcast and not to say, I'm sure you, even at your, at your age, you've heard publisher perish in some form, right? It's it's the sense that if you are not actively contributing to the literature, what are you doing as a scientist? Whether or not you as a scientist believe that I should spend five years refining and perfecting my method and publishing this paper, or I should publish every, you know, on this paper every three months in sort of piecemeal fashion, the scientific community says do it piecemeal because that's how you prove your worth. Um, you know, I just that's that's a pretty incredible way to incentivize someone, right? It's just do more. So you end up in a situation where, as you say, there's a knowledge overflow, even if you're in a small, you know, small, very niche fields are able to consume all of the information that's relevant to them. But those are very niche fields. Every publisher is interested in, okay, how can we use artificial intelligence and natural language processing and big terms that all old, perhaps older people might not really understand, but understand that it's a buzzword. How can we use that <laughs> to deliver content that is incredibly relevant to people? Right? Like. Classic pain point is is always is always saying you know I'm a reviewer and I'm always asked to review papers that are outside my scope right like I'm a whatever the heck it might be I'm a I'm a cardiologist and I keep getting things I keep getting papers on respiratory functions it's like clearly this isn't my area of expertise great way to make someone never want to work for you again. And so there's all of these things that's like, okay, how can we make sure that people who are most interested in reading the stuff are getting the stuff they're most interested in reading? And how can the people who are doing reviews, make sure they're only reviewing content that they're really interested in? How can we can get people who, you know, making sure that every, every person is only getting the most best of the, of the, of the research that's being published, which again, just becomes a monumental task when you're putting out 2 million, about 2 million research outputs a year on top of all the historical knowledge that's come before
0: you. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, you're you're right. Um, that's uh why don't we sort have, of transition a little bit? I was say, uh, if you have answers are...
1: for it, you can make a lot of money.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. So let's let's transition a little bit because I'm 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 actually kind of fascinated now a little bit about your your um your 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 journey in publication um, in the publication field, how, um, how did you get into publication? And, uh, like, I know you said that you didn't, you knew you didn't want to go into a, say a more research or more education, um, path. What's, what made you choose publication? Sure. Um, so
1: we call it scholarly communications, academic publishing, whatever the heck, whatever the heck you wanted to call it. Um, sure. And I recognize it's a fairly obscure field uh, in the sense that it's like, hey, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse. Okay, I can pretty get a pretty good sense of what your nine to five looks like. You know, did you see the patients? Did you administer the drugs? Did you, all well, that? Um, publishing is an interesting one because it's something no one's really ever heard of, but it works behind the scenes. It's Fortunately, I, <laughs> I come from a, a family of publishers. My mom works in publishing as well. So I was fortunate enough to sort of like know Of the field that it existed i think that that is true for many people um and if if i may go on a caveat here particularly like as an industry it's we're an industry that struggles with hiring people of color um for myriad reasons you know a lot of them a lot of it comes down to that understanding right like there's just we're not doing book fairs and the places you know for job fairs and the places we should be doing to get those folks There's another factor around um this has been brought up at multiple companies that i've worked at is you know, it's not a very well high pay, it's not a high-paying industry. Um, so when I, for example, you know, when I graduated college and I started working in publishing, I was able to live with my parents, right? I lived in I was in Boston, incredibly, incredibly expensive city. And had I had my parents not been willing to put me up, I wouldn't have been able to take that job, right? Like, but like being able to have that baseline of privilege is is a level of like accessibility into the career. And another piece is, you know, typically again, broad strokes here is, is, you know, if you're a person of color and you're one of the first people of your family to go to college and you've got a good education that can open up a well-paying job for you, are you going to use that job to become whatever, like an engineer that's going to make you six figures or you can use that job to go and live with your parents so that you can pursue a career in publishing, right? Like the, the value prop isn't very good there. Um, so just to say like, like, you know, that's something that folks who listen to this, you know, just, just to be aware of it's something that struggles with the industry and as an obscure industry, it's one that initially we struggle with too, but you know, I I was fortunate enough to be aware of the industry going into it, Boston. And again, it's very much constrained to major cities. Uh, the company I work for is based in Toronto. I live in Philadelphia, which has three of the other major publishers has offices of three other, other major publishers in it. Um, And we hope that that's changing you know as the world gets more adapted to working from home i can tell you that i can do my job from absolutely anywhere and it won't really be impacted by that location um so we hope that people start to start to see that change too so that we can bring in you know people who've been traditionally kind of phased out of publishing by having to live at a high cost of living city having to you know be constrained to these nine to five on the eastern coast east coast time kind of things um but honestly, anyway, long-winded way. I uh, I started as an intern. I knew that there. I knew that the company existed. I knew to look for applications online. Um, fortunately, I was accepted. I you know I think one thing that's particularly attractive is I have a background in science. Um, many people who work in publishing. Many 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 people who work in publishing. Um, my oldest brother included. My brother and oldest brother now works for Penguin Random House. Um, but he started in in scholarly publishing as well. A lot of people end up saying all right i want to go work in trade publishing i want to publish the like next great american novel or whatever it might be only to realize the money just isn't there the jobs aren't there right like like so so it's that's that's like a real thing too you get a lot of like liberal arts kids you know white privileged liberal arts kids who end up being washed into publishing thinking that they're going to make this step into trade publishing which can happen for some if you're lucky but it's just it's very very limiting if that's really what it is that you intend to do so I never had that hang up. I was fortunate there. I was very easy. To, I was easy to be those, the grindstone on my career. When I got in, um, people are really important. The people who you start your career career with are really important. Um, and I think, um, I was actually talking to someone on the plane last week when I was on my way back in Toronto about this, about how, you know, when you finish your, when you start your career, when you finish school, you're going to be in a situation where you move from being at least this how I found myself, Graded A to D. You know, A is excellent. B's you did okay. C's you got to do better. D's come on, like pull it together, right? And it's very, and you get held against that rubric for 16 years, and it's very easy to appraise yourself along that rubric. I know what it means; it's intuitive to us. When you graduate, that doesn't exist anymore. You have to feel comfortable that you are doing a good job of what you're doing, right? Like I'm confident that I wake up, I send the right emails, I talk to people, I make move the move the move the wheels and and get stuff going. And so it's important you have a boss that's like willing to understand you that you're in that stage of life and help you there. And so I was really, really lucky to have a guy named uh, Bart Watzek, who's, uh, you will not find him on LinkedIn, I promise you. But uh, he's he's been in publishing for 20, 30 years. He's got a keen, keen mind for business and was incredibly invested in um, me and my, and my other sort of earlier career colleagues in, in developing us. And so we, um, Wiley uh, is primarily known as a society publisher. So there's um proprietary titles, titles that Wiley has launched and owns the copyright for, and then um, society titles. So for example, the biggest one that Wiley publishes is the American Geophysical Union, the AGU. It's a contract that, I mean, is a massive contract, massive, massive contract. If you, the AGU covers space, earth, rocks, all of it. And if the physical sciences, the AGU covers it. So it's a massive contract, and they publish on their behalf. So there's an organization Wiley had uh, recently, before I joined, decided to split those two businesses in, in half. Pri- previously, everything was booked by subject. So whether or not it was a title that Wiley owned in um, Igneous Petrology, whether it was the AGU title, it didn't matter. You would, it would all be working on the same person. They divided to split by ownership. So proprietary titles under subject would be with me, and society titles under subject would be with someone else. And the thinking being that um, if you have a society partner that is much more of a service relationship, you know, I have signed a contract with the society that says I will provide Ben with X, Y, and Z every fiscal year, he will get marketing support. He will get a number of discount codes to promote an event, whatever the heck that might be. We'll write that agreement out. And a lot of the time it's frankly money, right? Like we will pay you this. We will give you this flat amount of cash to publish on your behalf because we believe you can make money publishing your journal. So Wiley has a reputation for being a society publisher and they had just split them. So uh, my boss worked in the proprietary titles, So a lot of the people said, Oh, like why is society publisher, a lot of big jazzy names over on that side. I want to go work over there. What that does is it very much packs many people into a room, which means there's not very much opportunity for those people in that same room. Um, the other thing is as well, because if you own the titles, such as we did in uh, the proprietary titles, you can tell people what you want to do, right? Like the society owns the journal and you have to say, yes, society, we would love to do this on your behalf. At the end of the day, I sign your, you know, editor in chief. I sign your paycheck. You have to do what it is that I tell you to do. So you get much more control over the sort of the strategy of the things you want to do. And say, this is these are the papers we want to target. These are the subjects we want to be targeting this year. These are the events we want to be speaking at. And you have to do it because you've signed a contract. As rude as that is, American as that is, I guess you've signed a contract that says you have to. And I can wave that at you, and you will do it. so I was very lucky to join sort of at that time when that split had just happened. So there's a lot of opportunity available for people like me uh, who are, who are willing to work in that space. And I, again, I was very, very lucky to be supported by, by Bart and my other colleagues at Wiley who sort of recognized that, uh, recognized that opportunity and recognized my potential and sort of push me to do so. Um, so I ended up, you know, I started as an intern, I ended up supporting about 40 journals as an assistant and ended up managing about five on top of the 40 that I supported by the time that I left. And, I was really lucky, I mean, I the thing I enjoy most about this job is is talking to researchers and meeting people um, that I wouldn't meet otherwise, you know, across all, I, I worked a lot in oncology when I was at Wiley, and it's not necessarily an area of interest for, for me personally, but it's very interesting to meet people who like, what what's your life story, how come you threw your life into oncology, what was it about this field that makes you, that makes you tick? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a lot of discretion on who it was that I wanted to talk to. So I was, you know, there's not many entry level positions where you get to set your own travel schedules, you know. So I got to go to San Diego. I got to, I mean, Cleveland's a little less glamorous, but got to go to Cleveland. Um, yeah, you know, I was very, 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 very lucky to be able to do that, and that really sort of like kept that passion up. That it's it's about the people. It's about talking to people and making sure that people understand that. I said at the beginning of this publishing is a black box, but there are people behind that black box who like genuinely care about making science better and and more accessible for people. And that's sort of, sort of voice
0: I've tried to kind of uh, navigate myself. So going off that black box, um, we do have about, I guess, 15 minutes left. Um, I would love to hear you kind of break down that barrier of that black box. And for somebody who is like, um, you know, a younger audience, um, just getting started in publishing, uh, maybe they've written their manuscript. They've submitted it. What happens, what happens in that black box?
1: For sure. Um, (laughs) it's funny. It's a good question. It's one, you know, I'm at the age where I've got kids and kids. Well, I don't have kids. I have friends. (laughs) uh finishing up med school right so a lot of that is i've got a public i've got one publication i'm looking at where i want to apply for residency and this getting getting published it'll be a big part of my application in residency it shows that i have interest and desire to pursue this area academically and so i need to get this paper published in time right like i get it published quickly so that i can list it on my applications there's a lot of there's a lot of frustrations that someone in your position might run into ben um, the first one is identifying a journal what what journal is the right fit for you you know uh, is it you know with all due respect you're probably not going to be publishing in nature anytime soon you know we literally did it we fixed cancer you know we did it this, that's the journal where you're going to see it right it's going to be in nature so it's okay so short of us nature where are we going to publish uh, haven't cured cancer yet so all right that's the whole thing most people if you're in your master's and phd kind of level have an advisor that can help them right they say okay where do you publish dr Frederick? You know, what, what's always been the journal. That's and that's so how so much of this business works. It's like, well, I had a good experience here and I had a bad experience here. So that's what I'm going to tell my students. My students now are going to pass it on to their students and so on and so, so on. That's how you build your reputation. That's sort of my position, what you're trying to intercept to make sure that say, they're saying the nice things about you. Um, so short of that, you can hit the internet, right? You can hit Google. You can hit places like ResearchGate, try and find your community online if you don't necessarily have an advisor, you know, hope at this point you would, you would have someone who'd be willing to help you like a Dr. Bain or something, someone who's willing to say, yeah, this is, is, is not a good journal, but then you run into a lot of other issues. One of them is, okay, I am on a deadline. I have to get my manuscript approved or published in the next six months so that I can meet this application that I need to do. A lot of journals, some do, and it's becoming a more increasing trend um, on the thing called, it's called uh, uh, DORA, if you're a DORA signatory, um, directory open research assessment, open research assessment is the ORA thing. So it says, um, you know, if you sign up for it, you are saying, okay, I will, I will put my information online. So time to first decision is on my journal homepage. Okay. You can wait two weeks time, first decision, whatever. Problem is, typically, if, if those pages, if those are displayed, they're probably quite good times, in which case it's probably quite a good journal. If they're not displayed, that's honestly the majority of journals. But you have absolutely no idea what that time could be. Some journals, you know, it could be months for you to get a first decision, and that first decision could be no, right? You're not really kept in the loop in the meantime that says, we're looking at your paper. Your paper's in, you know, yours is next in the queue, and We're going to look at it next. It you just, it just wait and wait and wait, and no one's in contact with you. It's entirely on you author to follow up and say dear editor dear whoever in charge of the journal where's my paper where's my paper where's my paper um so that's the first stumbling point it's just timing not knowing not knowing where to put it and the timing to get it back the other point is you know you end up oftentimes with your paper gets accepted um or or they say yes your paper it gets accepted with minor revisions right and it says we think your paper would be improved by adding these sites, you know, adding these sources. If you address these points, very good. It's a very important part and the peer review is very important. There's also, you know, there's the black box of, in often cases, blinded peer review. You don't know who is giving you that feedback. Sometimes it comes out really nasty, right? It's, 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 it's your first paper. It's your best effort at it compared to someone who's been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. It's not going to be as good at it, but like you shouldn't have to suffer insults for that. And some people do, right? So. If I don't, if I'm an old hoity-toity doctor and I don't recognize your name and I'm in the field and I think I'm chief, you know, so knowledgeable about the field, I know anyone and everyone who's worth publishing on, it's very easy for me to be dismissive of you. Oh, Ben Federick, never heard of him, didn't like his paper, just going to say it's bad and I'm not going to give a feedback that's, that's going to be constructive. You know, I'll say one of the things I really enjoy about working at, at Jameer is, is honestly our, our, our brand, a lot of our brand is built on giving good feedback um we won't always say we'll publish a paper but we'll tell you what's wrong with it and we'll do it in a constructive way you'll say hey this mm-hmm. this would be improved by this because it would you know expand your methods it makes your results more clear that how you came to your results whatever that feedback might be there's a very specific way to give that versus just being dismissive and shitty to someone that's a problem that a lot of people run into a lot of particularly early career researchers in smaller fields there's also the risk of i'm in such a small field that people recognize my name right so it's like like this person can knows who i am because they can see the the byline on the submitted i don't know who they are and they don't like me because i mm. gave them a bad review or i said something about their, that but that i disagreed with their work at a conference once they can they can spite punish me for that
0: mm.
1: so cool that's something that you might run into as well and then there's the issue of um okay that's been you you've done it you've revised your manuscript and it's been accepted great it's going to be accepted for publication. You don't necessarily, most people will tell you when that is, it should probably be about two weeks from when they say, yes, your paper is accepted to when you see it online, some journals, that's not true. So you should, you you know, you'll have to look up that specific journals policy. Right. And, and again, this is a keen thing Overlining This is journal by journal. This can all be different. You know, there's not one centralized workflow that you can expect, that'll be like, yes, this one should be three months, two months, three months here. No, and it'll vary by journal by journal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the end of it, you've waited. knows how many months you're not really sure who's touching your paper at any given point and then it gets sent to copy editing which this is why i think when when i say black box i think specifically and again these are my opinions um not reflective of anyone but the large corporate publishers right it's it's much easier to make money they are profit driven and it's much easier to make money on someone if they don't if they're being bamboozled right if they don't really know what's going on so you end up in you know so it's the next page your paper is accepted and now it goes to copy editing it's frankly because of you know business reasons it's going to go somewhere in singapore or india to okay there's a couple of like major companies that service pretty much the top the four largest publishers um and you know those folks are they're like lovely folks, but they are told to work to a rubric specifically. They're incredibly inflexible. They are essentially, they are told that they are replaceable, right? It's its like, mm-hmm. if your job, if your metric is process 40 papers a day and do it to these strict guidelines, and if you don't process those 40 papers a day, you will be fired. You're just going to do whatever the guidelines say, even if it doesn't make sense, right? So, you'll, so you as an author are now very frustrated because you've gotten your proof back three times. You've sent this three times, Ben, three times you've sent the proof and you've said. Mm-hmm. Hey, I don't know why you keep fixing this figure. It's very much supposed to be like this. Like, please don't mess with the colors. The color is very important because it indicates that this disease is present or this bacterium is present versus whatever the heck else it might be. Like, please stop editing my figures. But that person's rubric says edit figures to fit this certain way. So you've done that four times. You've gone back four times with this person now. And every time they send you your proof wrong. And so eventually you have to get someone else, you have to get the journal manager involved and say, hey, you know, they're just not editing my proofs up to as I keep telling them to do it. And then that's a whole separate conversation that the editor has to have around. Okay, now I have to approve that this is a, you know, a, a non-standard submission or whatever the heck they want to call it. And so through the end of that, and by the end of that, you'll be published, right? But it, it's, it's like pulling, it's pulling teeth the entire way. You don't really know where your paper is. You don't really know who's touching it. You don't really know who has looked at it and provided the feedback or, or done the typesetting or done the, you know, it, it's, it's all service at email addresses um and so the, the the other piece of this is is the actual black box in terms of the payment of it of like how people what where you to make money um and from the publisher spent large you know profit for profit publishers that comes in the form of well many different ways many many different ways you know um a very a sort of obvious one is just we, we charge you as a, as a large publisher, we pay your library, pays a subscription to subscribe to our journals. It's a Netflix style deal. You either get them all or you don't get any of them. You don't get to pick, sorry. Um, so even if you are, you know, even if you're the, uh, Thunder Bay Institute of osteopathic medicine, right? It's like, we're not just going to sell you osteopathic papers. We're going to sell you, you know, Roman history as well, because we can. Um, and so, you know, that's a really good, and because, because the people in your you know, the, the the physicians at the Thunder Bay osteopathic clinic will go, we cannot afford, we need nature, you know, osteopathic medicine. Anything the mm-hmm. big that will be published or any big major breakthrough that comes through will be published in that journal and we'll be caught, you know, with our pants down if we can't get access to that paper. We'll, you know, we'll look like schmucks at the conference because we don't know what the latest technique, the latest tool, whatever that is being used in the field is. So you as, as the librarian at the uh, Thunder Bay Osteopathic Medicine Center have to say, well, I have to pay for that. I have to pay for medicine, right? I have to pay for nature. I have to pay for that for that title. My, my surgeons need it. Even if I don't need any of these other papers that are coming with any of those journals that are coming with it, they need that one. So I would argue that that's coercive.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there's also the version of it's coercive where you end up, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are with open access publishing. I work for an entirely open access publisher, um, and the difference is, so at the end of at the end of this as well. So Ben, if, have you gone the traditional publishing route? At the end of this, you've signed your copyright over. Um, the last step of it is thank you for your paperwork. You know, thank you for your manuscript. It's wonderful. You have given us your work for free, right? You Ben, your your work has been given to us for free, and you've signed the copyright over. You said you could I can use this. You know, I can I can use my figures. Want to go talk to my colleagues? I can present on this. But you own the copyright. I have a right to use it, but you own the copyright. And ends up ends up in a situation where you go, okay, i've I've done this work. I've been have done, let's just say I've been doing, again, gel assays, right? And I've been doing in a lab that has been paid for by my university. I've been, you know, the reagents were paid for by the state, whatever like a mice or I am, I am a government researcher, right? So my salary is paid for by the state. And I have now been made to make my my both my research, which was paid for by government money, and my salary, which was paid for by government money, I've put it behind a paywall by signing over the copyright to someone. We're hoping that there are practices, you know, moving to open access is moving away from that. It's moving so that, OK, if you've done that research, the public, even if they're not interested in it, should have a right to access that because they have paid for it, right? It, it is public money that being used for public research. Most people aren't going to read it, but those who care about it should be able to. Um, and so then there's another really good way to make money is, is like, we publish fully open access at Jameer. So every paper you can read available, you know, you pay that fee upfront. It's, you pay essentially just say a couple thousand dollars to, you retain the copyright, you release the copyright to the world, right? So it's, we don't get to do that anymore. But what's really good is there are journals that are called hybrid journals, and this is a personal, a personal pain point for me where okay you can pay an apc to make your article available just this article the rest of the journal is still behind the paywall so so let's say so let's say we publish in a given year you and i publish a hundred papers in our journal in our in our what's called a hybrid title hybrid gold title we do a we have pure gold oa title so there's hybrid titles the hybrid title says okay we've published 100 papers this year 30 of those papers were published open access right so that means that even if you and I are not subscribing to them, we can go access them. Okay. So when we go to the library next year and we say we need to renegotiate how much you're going to pay on your subscription fee, what you think would happen? Would you say, okay, yeah, we love that. We love Journal X. You know, published 100 papers last year, and we noticed that 30 of them were open access. So we'd like to only spend 70% of what we paid last year when zero of them were open access, right? Like, why am I paying for something that I already can get for free that someone has already paid? And mm-hmm the large publishers will say, oh, this is why hybrid journals are evil. They'll say, oh, that's, that's a very good point. But actually, you know, instead of, instead of it costing, you know, it was a thousand dollars for a hundred of these papers. And now 30 of them are are freely available. So instead of $700, which should be a rate, which is the, you know, the one-to-one mathematical rate, it's going to be more like 850. Mm -hmm. And we're not really going to tell you that calculation, right? We're we're just going to say, well, based on our calculations, this should be the fee. This is the fee. This is the new subscription fee, bearing in mind that we have 10%, 20%, 30% of the content is now available. That's a very good way to skim money off the top, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's double dipping. Someone has paid a couple thousand dollars for that paper to be open access to you, the publisher. So for you of them, pay them over what the paywall should be to get more money on it,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: like pretty unethical, I would argue. Um, yeah. But that's the, but that whole point of that, that goes to the black box point is like, no one really under researchers don't un- fully understand what it is that's going into their, their APC, their article publication charge, right? Why does it cost mm-hmm. what it costs? What is the cost? Like, and most many, you know, people can't explain that cost. And so it becomes very easy just to say the cost is what the cost is. It's a, it's a good journal. So the APC is high. Well, yes, but does it have to be this high? Could it be lower? Could it be cheaper for these people who are, you know, a marginalized community, whatever that means so that's a very good way to make money and is a good illustration of the black box of publishing
0: yeah thank you for breaking that down that was really awesome um we are getting close to time any uh last pieces of advice for young people what's uh how about this what's one piece of advice that you think that is you think is important but that is not cliche that is that a, a student might have never heard before Oh, specifically related to research. Um, just for someone who's interested in getting into research one, one thought or one piece of advice. device, sure. Um, papers
1: with the most boring titles might do you the most good. Um, by that, I mean, if you're, if you're, I mean, if you're really earnestly curious in, in the subject you're going to get into. Um, I can recommend as I will to anyone, the dimensions tool at dimensions.ai. It's a freely available, like, look it up. It's just fun. It's cool. So you say you're curious, you'll say, oh man, I'm curious what the best, most interested, highly cited, what the most tweeted, like, like, if I'm curious, what, what Twitter is interested in Twitter, you know, what the the paper and a journal of interest, I mean, I can look that up. I can look that by my field as well. So I may not have to read all hundred of the best manuscripts, but I can read the top three and when I, to my point around the most boring titles, right? Like systematic reviews or literature reviews you know you're not going to find necessarily wonderful groundbreaking science discoveries in them but what you will find is names of people who are currently in your field right who is being cited who who's important enough that if i'm going to do a review of the literature on a subject whose work do i need to be citing it'll give you a good review will give you the rundown of the for and the against points right so if you're really interested in just sort of like i'm interested in this subject but I don't know if I want to, you know, read 30 papers on it. Go and look at the literature, find find a good literature review. Um, and heck, if you have, if you, if you have someone who's, um, if you have an advisor, or you've been talking to someone who's interested in you being an advisor, I'm sure that they can, uh, very quickly point you to what they consider like the seminal review in their field. Right. And then that's always a good starting point. There's always going to be a seminal paper
0: or a seminal review. It's a good place to start there. Well, in that case. Thanks for the advice and thanks for the talk. Um, yeah, that was really, that was a really great conversation.
1: Yeah. My pleasure. Um, I just, you know, I'm passionate about scholarly communications and if folks want to reach out to me, if they have questions, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, feel free to, feel free to follow up with me.
0: And I'll, uh, if you want to send those my way, I will make sure to throw them in the description of, uh, you know, whatever they're watching it on. True thing. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. All right.